Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Thanks to GLG Greenlight Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the first serve on this uh, Monday night, the 7th of November. Brett Phillips in the chair as we always cover the world of tennis right throughout the year. You can shop at Tennis Direct, our great partners, while you're listening in tonight. TennisDirect.com.au. You'll get that nice little 10% discount right across uh, their store, rackets, accessories, everything you need. Use that code FIRSTSERVE10. Everything will be delivered to your front door around Australia. TennisDirect.com.au. And free delivery on orders over $150. Rune Sabalenka, O'Connell and Co. coming up uh, very shortly in our winner's role. But uh, our special feature guest tonight is the Tennis Australia CEO, Craig Tiley. The state of Australian tennis is a topic of much debate. The longer I've been covering tennis and doing this show, uh, the more in-depth conversations I've had over the years with so many people in tennis, players, coaches, administrators, volunteers, and parents, all with a great passion to see the game be the best that it can be. It really ramped up during the COVID onslaught in 2020 when pro tennis paused, and we had the opportunity here at the First Serve to delve into more domestic tennis affairs. And our focus has swung to more that because that is more important to the Australian tennis community, the health of the sport at the grassroots and pathway level. So this interview tonight is just that. I'm not inside the four walls of Tennis Australia, nor am I at the coalface at club level day to day. So we sit in the middle to be a platform for all stakeholders in the game. I've certainly come to my own conclusion that it's not just a small minority who are a little disillusioned with the state of the game in this country, led by the governing body. Tonight, Craig Tiley, the CEO of Tennis Australia. The state of Australian tennis, how do you view it as the person who who leads it and shapes it? Well, I think the first thing I do is look at the data, particularly in the last two years. I think certainly helped by COVID, we saw more people come back to the game and play the game than we've seen bef- ever seen before. When it comes to uh, sporting schools and kids participating in schools, tennis is, I think, for the seventh straight year, the number one chosen sport. And that's not our data. That data has come from Ausplay. Tennis enjoys a position of being the third most participated sport sport in Australia. We have an aspiration to get back to number one when we were where we were 20 plus years ago. And then the feedback we've been getting through the work we've been doing the last year and a half on the future potential growth of the game and the opportunities in the game uh, through the town halls, which I think you sometimes participate in, and, and those communication sessions have been highly, highly positive. We do get the occasional person who give us some feedback, which we always welcome. We always welcome an opportunity for someone to tell us we can do something better. Not only us, but you know, there's a there's a, an entire network of people that deliver the game. You've got a large group of volunteers, and volunteerism is definitely challenged in today's world across not just tennis but across sport that we have to protect. You know, over 2,600 clubs in Australia, over 15,000 tennis courts, and over 1.6 million tennis players. Per capita, most participated sport in the world, compared to other nations that play tennis, there's over 200 nations that do participate in the sport. And we do enjoy one of the four grand 
slam. So there's very high interest in it. So, you know, we look at it from the perspective of doing the best we possibly can through that network, through the volunteer network, through the clubs, through the, you know, some of the private facilities, the coaches, over 4,000 professional coaches. No sport can equate to that. And But you're always going to have people that are going to have a different view. And that's fine. We're not trying to create a one size fits all for everyone. We just have a team that does this, its best, but we, uh, there's better it can do. But we, if you go back and look at the data, as I said at the beginning, I look at the data and the data paints the positive picture for us. The CEO for a decade, I mean, every CEO has a, a shelf life to impact an organisation. From the Australian Institute of Company Directors, studies have found that the optimum tenure is sort of typically eight to 12 years. You're in that sort of window now. And I, I think of AFL club CEOs and a guy like Brian Cook sort of blew that out the window 23 years at Geelong. Where are you at personally in this whole journey and, and what would leave you, Craig, satisfied to eventually yeah. depart the role at some stage? Yeah, I mean, it's always a good question. Um, I became this year in, in 2014 was my first year and it's been, it's been an incredible journey. I intended to re- remain that way as we continue to have success that we need to have success. COVID created an interruption for all leadership across the world and then you had to rearrange your environment uh, in such a way where you were responding to a crisis and while we all thought that crisis response would be a short period of time it, it was two years and as longer because even now coming out of it you know how we position the sport and what we do for the sport into the future you know is critically important so yeah i think i, I it's a it's it's not a decision for me it's a decision for others i love what i do i love the people i work with i think we've got a, a bright future we've just finished a large bit of work we call fit for growth which is what our, our five-year commercial strategy there's been some commentary around that over the last 24, 48 hours. We're also going to be delivering, you know, some specifics around the future participation strategy, game on. And and I think you obviously the town halls we've been doing and some of the feedback sessions we've been getting to your first question, actually, there is an opportunity through the website and through quite a few other forms of, of digital platforms to provide feedback for tennis and, and through the work they've been doing around the, the, the future strategy we've been getting a lot of responses to the surveys we've been sending out and to the feedback which is great and that'll be ongoing that be and that's something probably we should have introduced that a long time ago but having that last year and a half has been really helpful I mean from the outside your your influence is extremely strong which is to be expected as the leader you know people have said to me just in the running of the game and the direction of Tennis Australia and where the governing body has evolved to from governing the sport to sort of becoming a, a company and in, an entertainment uh, business, if you like, you know, is it going in the right direction? There is a board, you, you touched on that, but you're the face to the outside because we don't hear really from the chair. I mean, this program has put in numerous requests to speak to Jane to get her perspective on Australian tennis, but we've been told that she isn't available to do media. So for those those not privy, Craig, can you give us a little feel for the dynamic between chair and, and CEO? You've got a leading businesswoman in this country running a major airline, a strong CEO in a global sport. We know your influence, but we don't know a lot about how Jane Hurdleker actually shapes this organisation as the chair. Yeah, look, I think it's not just the chair. It's a board. I think we've got a great, uh, we've got a great board. We've got a great chair. It's a group of nine people 
people, they get elected. Um, six of those get elected by the members, uh, the other three by the board. I, I can say I've been on this journey, you know, now, as you said, since CS, since 2014, and played different roles in the organization as well. And you know, this board is a high-performing board. And it's, 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 it's been a pleasure to be a CEO with this board. And I think when you have a board that has, has the group of professionals that we have on it, I think sometimes they don't get the recognition because they're not the type of people that want to be out in front. That's not their job. Mm. And uh, and I think people that are looking for them to be out in front and to talk in the front is are misguided because it's not – their job is not to – they talk within the community. They talk – with their stakeholders, with their members, the member reps, the member boards. Um, you know, we have often have communication sessions after every board meeting. We've had nearly 20 board meetings this year because of COVID, which is an inordinate amount. But but uh, but they'll, they'll go and have the conversations with their members right afterwards, and that's really who they're responsive to. The board also, together with management, work on the strategy. Um, and uh, we have very open, robust conversations on the build of that. It comes from the data. You know, we build the data around, you know, what's needed, what's the feedback from the community, um, and uh, you know where their strengths, where their weaknesses. So, so look, I think I'm sure at any point Jane will be quite happy to have the conversation. Um, and uh, but at the end of the day. Um, you know, um, I'm ultimately responsible for being the spokesperson on behalf of the organization. Um, but that doesn't preclude members of the board, which they do, to have those conversations in the community. We get really helped tremendously by their relationship with government, uh, which has been critical, both state and federal government. Uh, they're all professionals uh, and some professional directors. Where it comes to infrastructure, you know, the rollout of our, our new campaign, we've got a board member who has great expertise in marketing and advertising. So it, it's diversity and the skill set. Um, you know, our nominations committee decides who's on the board. So, look, I'm, I'm, I can talk for, for a long time on it, but it's, uh, we're very lucky. It would be nice to hear from the chair, but just in respect to the board, why does Tennis Australia call for nominations for the board and then not put all the other nominations on the ballot for elections? So giving the states a, actually a choice to vote for more than one candidate. So in 2020 and 2021, there were two director positions vacant, three nominations, two from the incumbents and one a state board were received. However, Tennis Australia on both occasions only put the two incumbent directors on the ballot, meaning the states could only vote for the incumbent directors. And I think this year there is two director positions up for election. And the only people on the ballot are the incumbent directors who all have links to Virgin Australia, one who is a board member of Virgin, Graham Bradley, and the other an employee of Virgin in Libby Minogue. So why is there so many links to Virgin Australia and Tennis Australia, and why does it seem a little riddled with conflict of interests? Yeah, look, I think, um, well, first of all, I say this is matter more for the nominations committee. You know, you're asking management to talk about the board committees and and board positions, but I can I can tell you from the from the the, the current structure of the nominations process is set up by the members. So we often forget that. We, we often make a comment about something that's immediate in time, but, but historically, not and not in recent history, when our when our our current board 
worked on governance changes, which was voted on unanimously by the members, mm. and this current structure of nominations unanimously by the members. And part of that is a charter where the, where the nominating committee puts forward the nominees that come from the preferred skill set of which they nominate for. And so, um, and then they put those to the members to either, the members have the right to reject those nominations as well. So they can either vote for them or vote against them. So it does go through a voting environment. And, and ultimately, you know, we trust the nominations process. The nominations committee is made up of a majority of independent members, non non-board members and uh, independent expertise from the from the uh, from the community um, and the process as I said is you know has been approved historically by by the members and and I think the you know I on on the upcoming election which happens at the AGM December we've got two incumbent board members that were nominated in slots of the skill set that the board is is needed and uh, influential and, and important to big decisions that have been made Craig Tarley, CEO, Tennis Australia, our special guest on the first serve. We uh, did catch up at uh, TA headquarters uh, earlier today. AATC, I need to give them a little mention on the way to the break. Australasian Academy of Tennis Coaches, they're providing quality coach education right across the globe. Courses delivered by industry leaders and tennis business owners. Learn locally, coach globally, internationally endorse, inquire and enrol. Get on board, aatc.tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back to The First Serve. Brett Phillips in the chair tonight. Our continuing chat with the Tennis Australia CEO, Craig Tiley. So unlike the other three Grand Slams, you hold the position of CEO of TA yeah. and Tournament Director of the Australian Open. So the outside view is that doing the dual roles takes your focus away from really ensuring the game is at its healthiest here and thriving. You've got an extremely strong work ethic. I think everyone knows that. You've got a big team, obviously, around you. But a lot of people have said to me, the game here needs to be split into two. Just having the CEO running the game with knowledgeable people who have a real passion for the game and the Australian Open, which has become bigger and bigger every year, yeah. actually runs separately. So I'd love to just get your insights into that because when I go around talking to people in tennis, that is often a talking point that gets brought up to me. Yeah, if people want to take a crack, they'll bring it up because it's an easy one because you see you've got two titles. So actually, I should probably remove one of the titles. That's also a bit of history, which I haven't really focused on. But, but basically... It's one role. And I think to really understand it is you're the CEO of the business. Um, and if you take the CEO of Wimbledon, she's responsible for the delivery of Wimbledon. Mm. You know, so the day-to-day decisions doesn't become the spokesperson as much, but the day-to-day, in that case, it's shared by the chair. Well, no, that case is shared by, or the, not even the tournament director, I think, talks much. I think she does it all. Uh, the French have just made a change, um, and uh, and the US uh, have have had them split and together. The French had had them recently together. Wimbledon recently had them together. So it just it goes back and forth. But it's not if you 
if you're responsible for the running of the business, a big part of that business is Australian Open. To keep, I don't run the Australian Open. I have a, there's a team of people that run the Australian Open. Similarly, that you know, I don't run what's happening in a tennis club. You have a team of people that does that. Um, or financial services, the team that does that. Or uh, IT, there's a team that does that. My responsibility is to make make sure we have the best capability and the best leadership. Where I think it gets confused, I'm the spokesperson for not only the uh, the tournament but the business. And then people say, oh, well, the tournament's separate from the business. And that was a problem tennis had historically. The two were separate. There was two separate reports to the board. And it was during that time when it was the most challenges. The sport had the biggest challenges. And so so it was, I think, in the early, the late 2000s when they were brought together into one organization. And that was the right move. The other slams have it that way. So I think sometimes it's a... It's a misunderstood role, um, and you really probably it's you only really get to understand it if you're actually working in the organisation. No one in the organisation would be saying it's two different roles. So a lot of comments come back to me that rightly or wrongly, Tennis Australia yeah. only care about the Australian Open, not the yep. real health of Australian grassroots tennis. Right. I think we're good at the Australian Open. Grassroots is harder to be good at. But I would challenge that because that's not uh, certainly my uh, daily commitment in time. It's, it would be hard to figure it out exactly, but some days are different. But more than three quarters of my time is, is spent specifically focusing on grassroots and the game. And the other quarter would be focus on events. Remember, the events only once a year. It's only one time of the year. Generally, on a day-to-day basis, with the whole organization, there's a massive focus. Our investment in grassroots tennis is three times the investment is in performance, for example. Our investment is exactly commensurate with the revenue. As the revenue goes up, so does the investment in grassroots tennis. So mm. I understand where people get disappointed by something and something's not working for them. And we really appreciate when those people step up and provide solutions or give you some advice or say this is what the issue is but have you thought about this we and we have a lot of people that do that you know we welcome that anytime if anyone's got some feedback to provide to provide it to us directly and and we'll, we'll action them and we'll and many and as i said before i w- i'm not going to sit here and say we do everything everything 100 percent and do everything well we give 110 percent effort in doing everything we do we all have the same objective and as everyone does out there, and that's to grow the game and get more people to play the game. Can I just read you a couple of comments? So these were sent to me over the journey. You talk to different people. So TA has made themselves into a company with a great deal of money spent on staff and are bewildered how they treat tennis and its people. Much of the tennis policies are formulated by staff who know nothing about tennis. Control of member states by paying Tennis Australia controlled staff to manage tennis. Profits have been manipulated to gain control of tennis through paying staff and not spent on the game of tennis. Player carnage, shattered dreams, a very expensive experience. Players quit with a sour taste in their mouth. A $30 million a year tournament and competition circuit is needed. So surely the best way to run the sport is to spend the profits mainly on players to give prize money to enhance their tennis. Tennis Australia are control freaks. Lack of transparency of where the money is spent. Now they're pretty passionate comments and there's always going to be lots of 
wide opinions, but it's just incredible to me, and this, is, this would go for any governing body, whether it be the AFL who are so powerful here, the view inside can be so contrasting to the view outside. As I said, I just sit in the middle and it's fascinating to just hear the take of people out there and their, and their feelings because they're pretty strong. Yeah, I don't want to dismiss those, but honestly, that would be a tiny minority. You think so? Yep. And the reason why I say that is because I hear the other side too. I don't know if you hear it. Mm. I haven't heard any positive comments that you've shared today, but there would be yeah. there would be positive comments. Uh, as I said before, as I don't, I'm not going to sit here and I'm going to claim that everything's done well, you know, because we, as you mentioned, we are, you know, some people may have a, have a view that Tennis Australia is responsible for the survival of that club and we may have no influence over it, but we would be naturally blamed if it didn't. I get that. Or the opportunity for a player, and we'd be naturally blamed if we didn't. Or a kid didn't get the ranking they should have got. That's not, I'll accept that. That's kind of goes with the territory of being a governing body. But on the flip side, there's a lot of positive things that happen, and unfortunately, you know, it 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 doesn't get the same traction that when there's a comment that's made. I mean, those are emotional comments and emotive comments. But I look for the opportunity where something can be done better. And if someone is really interested in being done better, they'll work on making it being better and build the resources, get the resources to you know give a call, you know, contact the right people. And then, it, then if it doesn't improve, then it, then it's more of a challenge than an issue. You know, like with everything, there's there's things that that go well, there's things that don't go well. But as long as the intent is right, and that I can talk to because that I know. Well, when I sat in on the community forum, you talked about intent. I've had a lot of dealings with you, and I'm not certainly yeah. dismissing uh, that at all. And I don't yeah. work inside the four walls here, and as much as I'd love to be probably a fly on the wall, no one probably questioning the intent. Yeah, I don't know if I quite share the view that it's a small minority, but yeah. we can maybe agree to well, disagree. Well, I, I say yeah. that that's because that's my data. Yeah, Your data may be different, mm. but that's my data because yep. again we were in the community and asking the questions and talking to the group and mm. and of course you're going to have some complaints you're going to have some emotional people and i do have i i hear from people that are emotional about something that didn't get selected for this or this is not working for yep. them and and absolutely hear about and i i welcome hearing about that mm. because that's because that's you know, I don't want to hear all the positive stuff. That doesn't get the, the notoriety or the traction. I want to hear the stuff that, that, that can be improved because at the end of the day, I know one thing we cannot be accused of, not giving it a good go and having a great interest in the growth of the game. And to your comment on the Australian Open, we, the Australian Open, we do the best we possibly can with that so we can generate the revenue we can to invest in the game. And as I said, the playing opportunities we have in Australia, we're very fortunate with it. The pro circuit events, all the, all the professional events in January, per capita, there's no country in the world that has that investment. Uh, it's number one. And so, you know, then you ask the question is like, you know, what more? And that's where you want to hear the feedback. Craig Tiley, Tennis Australia CEO, is our special guest on the first serve uh, tonight. Hume Tennis and Community Centre. It's a little uh, mini Melbourne Park. Got to get out there and see Tim and the team. He'll be with us in the studio next week. It's in Melbourne's north. It's got tennis for everyone. Perfect also for coaches and players if you're coming from interstate to train and compete. Very close to Melbourne Airport. There's accommodation just around the corner. Find out more at humetennis.com.au. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. 
leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Great to have your company on The First Serve on this Monday night. Uh, Brett Phillips in the chair. Let's head to part three of my chat with Craig Tiley. Earlier today at Tennis HQ, all thanks to Melbourne's leading synthetic grass court surface and construction specialists. They are the magnificent Asti Tennis Courts. So Alan and the team doing a beautiful job. They're trusted by Melbourne tennis clubs and councils. Check out aste.com.au. I just would like to get to the bottom of the hottest topic sure. here, and that's UTR. Yeah. We've done a lot on it on our show. We've had Tom in, we've had Lawrence, and then we've had sure. the TA perspective, and we've had the outside perspective. Craig, is it possible that Tennis Australia have got it wrong with UTR? I mean, TA continually tell us that people just yeah. don't understand the system. But is yeah. it possible that Tennis Australia have it wrong and that people do understand the system and that is why yeah. they are not playing? Obviously, there is the investment yeah. into UTR. Okay. So from my understanding, yeah. it's not yeah. clearly probably documented in yeah. the annual report. So it was just to get, really get some transparency on the agreement we have with UTR. Is it compromising the health of Australian tennis? Because the feedback, and I would say this is the vast majority, is that UTR, the implementation of the UTR, this year has not worked. There's certainly some things with the UTR that can be improved. If we take a step back, the objective of, of the UTR was, was not so much UTR, but it was about having level-based play. The challenge we have in Australia is, if you take France, for example, they've had a rating system for 30-plus years. Mm. It works really well. Level-based play, tournaments on the weekend, when you play your first match, you know that you're going to have an even-based match. You're not going to win 0-0 or 0-1 and lose 0-0 and 0-1. And you know you're going to, from the beginning, have have level-based play. And I've participated in it. I've seen it. I've seen it really work well. And they have their own rating system. Um, what UTR offers, it's been around, people forget, 20-plus years in the college system. It's, 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 it's been a useful rating system because you, rankings from country to country don't really work that well. But having level-based play... And having an environment where kids don't have to travel as much as they do because they get the, the, the they get the, they get an environment where they've got more competition earlier in 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 the inner competition period. That was the ultimate objective. It's a journey, though. It's a journey. You can't switch one thing off and go to another one. So now, so we've adjusted. We've so in the community, for example, one thing that was missing was the ongoing points race. So we'll add the points race onto it. And that'll make a difference. Uh, the other one is we're rolling out the new calendar, which will be announced, I believe, it's the, the middle of this week or yep. the end of this yep. week. And I think the cracks that are taken on money, at the very beginning, we made a very small investment in UTR, right. um, as, as did many nations do. And, and it is, it's rolled out across many nations. There's also WTN, which is very same as UTR. It's a the ITS version of it. And they both really aligned ratings on a, on a level-based play. Where it's worked, where it hasn't worked, UTR hasn't worked, where it's taken away from some of the regional events that now have a drop in the entries, but where it has worked in some of the metro events where they've had an increase in the entries. So there's been a bit of a balance in some of that. Some of the areas we've got to address more, we've got to put more focus and more energy into to correct that. Uh, and other areas, not as much. 
and across the country, you'll hear, some areas you hear it's working well, some areas you're working terribly. And we recognize that. And it was not, you know, like I, I always say to people when I was coaching, I used to say the pain of change you know, is greater than the pain of losing. And this is a change environment. And this is a journey mm. that ultimately with the objective is to have more level-based play, to have it socially with adults, to have it with junior comp. And because if I've got a kid and I want them to play four or five matches on the weekend in a tournament or an event, and they go and they lose 0 and 1 and 1 and 0 or the same thing if they win, the experience that they get turns them away from tennis. And that's why the biggest challenge we have in tennis to talk about is teenagers drop off playing the game. 12, 13, they drop off the cliff playing the game. They come back to it. And that that cohort is one of the number one bits of feedback we got on all the research that we got was there was two things. One, I go and play a tournament and I get my brains beat out earlier or I, or I'm the competition is not good enough. And two, there's not enough team events. So those, those have to be corrected as well to get more people to play the game. So, you know, I, I, this is, again, I'm just repeating the feedback that I've got too um, from the different communities. And we've been around with states on, you know, just, I mean, I know Tom's just done a recent tour around the country talking to the state, the state bodies, state competitive bodies, and recognizing where the challenges are and what can be done to fix them, like the points, the introduction of the points race, which will be announced, I think, here coming up. The addition of the points race back into the system, which will help change it a little bit and, and change the perception of it. But it's a journey of change, uh, Brett. And I think when you go on that, is it's not, it's it's honestly not easy just to flip the switch on and flip the switch off. So since the introduction of the new competitive play framework, you, you touched mm-hmm. on this, but tournament participants in each state and territory are declining with the most significant impacts felt regionally. So New yeah. South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, which are down as much as 57%, based on Tennis Australia's own figures released to the states. So do you think the points race is going to satisfy people it, or is it, it is it a sort of a band-aid? No, it'll be one correct? solution. It'll be one of many solutions, I think. And as I said, it's a, it's, it's a journey you go on. And I can guarantee you those percentage numbers will change. Maybe we'll have a conversation years time again so we can test that. Where it's working well and where those that are delivering on it well, it's really working well. In regional areas, it's impacted the most because then kids are not traveling like they used to. So someone that's running a tournament with 100, 120 participants was now suddenly down to 70 participants. And while the competition within it was good, is the number of participants, the number of entries, sorry, had dropped. So, so we have to address that. And you address that... Part of it is also matching with the the strategy you have with the growth of the game and with the team-based play that you're going to have with, for the teenagers to keep them playing the game so they will play the competition. So, so it's not just in isolation on the competitive side. It's also worked in conjunction with the growth of the strategies around uh, around increased play or increased introduction for play for junior for juniors this one's not an easy one uh, and because it's it's but but again and and everyone that plays competition knows that uh the more matches you get that are quality matches the better it is for the player the research that we've done on the consumer the one that's playing has been positive 
the competitive, the, the, the event deliverer has been negative. And because what's happening is they're getting fewer entries. Hmm. Whereas those that are participating in it have been much more positive. There's been less travel outside of the points, of course. And that's where I think the points, the points race will, will address that. And, and obviously, I think the experts to talk on this are the people that are living it every single day. And, uh, and definitely Lawrence would be one, Tom would be other, but others also out in the community. So you don't think there's any sort of conflict of interest because we have an investment into UTR, that we have to roll it out here? Because we're doing it as a, a sole rating, whereas the USTA haven't gone down that track. But teammate, so they own the Labor Cup, and which TA investing, which I'll ask yeah. in a moment. Teammate is an, an investor of Universal Tennis, is partner with yeah. TA with you as the CEO and the strong consensus that you've stubbornly supported the rating system regardless yeah. of the chorus of complaints from parents, players, coaches and regional clubs. So we had the Australian yeah. ranking system which was abandoned. The ITF World Tennis number has been ignored and teammate profit from their partnership with UTR at the tennis community's expense. That's yeah. Yeah. the feedback that's been given to me. So just for transparency, what's changing hands between TA and Universal Tennis and what money is changing? hands between universal tennis and teammates everything you've said is a conspiracy so there's no fact in that so i think it's really important to stay up front because i don't want to answer the question with what's been really a, a conspiracy statement so teammate we have we have nothing to do with teammate other than we are an investor teammate are also an investor in the labor cup i'm very proud of the fact that we invest in the labor cup because we're an owner in it we made an investment six, seven years ago. We own it. We obviously support Rod Laver. That's become a profitable event. We generate a profit that comes back to tennis, which we invest back into the game. Can you give us an idea of that? What sort of profit? There was no profit the first couple of years. Mm. And it's, uh, we've really paid back our investment, yep. you know, which is great. And now it works out to be, be a couple million dollars a year that comes back into supporting. So, I mean, it's a pretty cool international event. We saw Roger's thing. Teammate of the majority shareholder of, of Labor Cup. So, and that's Roger Federer's company. Then separately to UTR, we at the very beginning were a minor investor in UTR. You could almost say we're a minor investor in WTN, the ITF. We pay a fee to the ITF, much bigger fee than we would pay to, to UTR. So I think a lot of that is conspiracy that's built up because people are, you know, maybe some of the complainants are, are emotional about about the delivery that hasn't worked out. But factually, is is no bearing on the decision of, with that or not. And and similar to all the other things that we roll it, because I can give you many examples where we invest in things, Swing Vision, for example, or, or Hawkeye, or, you know, where, that we use. And you would say, well, of course you're going to use it because you invest in it. So it's, it is for the best interest of the game, the growth of the game, and the return on it. Craig Tiley is my special guest tonight on the first serve. Yarra Tennis Coaching at Eaglemont Tennis Club is just off the Eastern Freeway. Junior and adult programs available. Shane Scrutton, go and see him. You'll Learn a lot about the game. He's been in it over 30 years, whether you're a complete beginner or a serious player. Check out yarratennis.com.au. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. The first serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back to the final part of our interview with the Tennis Australia CEO, Craig Tiley. 
focused on the Labor Cup, we're quite detached from it, unlikely it'll ever come to Australia. Not necessarily so. I think it'll be a, it'll be a hard push because you've got to travel, the players are going to travel off the US Open down mm. to Australia. But European team and the international team, it, there's nothing stopping it from coming here. And there will be a time, hopefully, we can get it to be here. But, you know, quite right now, we're quite satisfied with the where it's with European and America because that's where it generates the most revenue. And and I think, uh, and that's what it's about for us as well. It's about for us is, is having a, a, a return on the investment, but then also having something that's in, in a market globally that you can, most people can see it. So so I know that, uh, you know, I mean, I think those that watched the Labor Cup this year really enjoyed, in, enjoyed the event. The development of a, a bigger national calendar of events here to allow our players to try and build a base before having to go overseas. So we know there's certainly logistically on the world map, there is some disadvantages to being from Australia. And the amount of time you've got to go spend overseas, and maybe the college option is going to become even more attractive for young players. We had a coach in the studio two weeks ago who said, if I was sitting down in front of a young 14, 15, 16-year-old, I would actually say to them right now, maybe go down the college path, get yourself a plan B with an academic qualification. You come out of tennis. We saw young Petra Hill make the final, who we've been following on the Australian Pro Tour over the weekend, who comes out at 23. But for those here who are trying to establish themselves, so we have the Australian Pro Tour sprinkled in between. There's obviously the recognition that our players have also got to go overseas and pit themselves against the world and have those those experiences. Is there anything stopping us from having a bigger ITF calendar of events so that our players can actually put a kitty of money together, the ones who are good enough, before having to go and spend so much to be based abroad? I think it's a big challenge, obviously. Tyranny of distance for us, is, it's, it's historically been a big challenge for us. And and as you know well, when I started in Australia, advocating for college tennis didn't exist. And as a former college coach, I came in and advocated for it. And our number of college players uh, grew eightfold uh, in a period of seven years. And and so I encourage two young players to go and play college tennis. I think it's a magnificent. I was mentioning it on Petra Hill. I was mentioning it this morning to Tim and saying, you know, that the number of matches a college player plays mm. can be six or seven times greater than the number of matches we play in Australia. And so even in Australia, with the competitions we have and traveling overseas, because if you go and travel, you play once a week, you lose in the first round or second round. College, you play you know, five or six matches a week. So it's a magnificent training ground for a young player. Unless you're someone that comes out of the blocks and you're an absolute superstar, then you go on and play pro tennis. Um, So that's so I will always advocate for college tennis. I think it's a magnificent pathway option. And as a coach, I will tell most of the kids that are playing tennis, go and get a scholarship. You've got there's plenty. There's you know in Division One, there's over five and a half thousand scholarship opportunities. So plenty of opportunity for Australians to play there. Then on competition, I do agree. I think more is better. But there also comes a cost to level because you can have more, more, more events. And then as you have more events, there's only a certain number of events that the best players can play. And the players that are competing can play. And the more events you have and there's fewer fewer of those players, then the level starts to drop where you don't attract the international players. And then you're just basically playing a club championship. That was the introduction of the Australian Money Tournaments. Mm. And that was the introduction of the UTR events. That was one positive thing with our 
one of the many positive things with UTR. UTR funded those events for us during COVID, for example, which we were able to offer playing professional playing opportunities for the players that wouldn't have normally existed. So it's a benefit that wasn't mentioned in your, in your, in your questioning. The strategy on, I think what's important is where the events are and when the events are and that they are maximizing the level that a player needs to compete in. But more competition is better competition. And a lot of your questions around we're around competition today, like we talked about the UTR level-based play. The more we can provide players, the better it is because the if you become a good player and having to travel like you do in the cost of traveling, and we subsidize a lot of that travel, and that's why investment in performance is probably higher than it is higher than the other Grand Slam nations because you know half what you're spending on travel. I think there'd be a lot of people though, who would just love the opportunity to be able to, like a lot of other codes, be able to build their standing in the game before they're going to take off with all the expense. So getting into more pre-qualities, yeah, think, into qualities like we have in Tunisia yeah. and Turkey, these sort of events where there's tournaments every single week. Yeah. Whether we could create something like that so, in a country that's so passionate yeah, so, well, look, as a coach, I'm going to put my coaching hat on here, is that you've got to be really careful of that. Because if you're not exposed to international competition as a young player, hmm. you're, not, you're not going to become the player you need to become. So the best players have to be exposed. 12, 13, 14, 15, have to go and travel. 70% of the players are coming from Europe. It's really hard within that. And you, you travel from Portugal to to the Balkan states, and it's like going, it's going from east to west. Uh, Craig Tiley, my special guest uh, tonight. Billy Jean King Cup Australia this week. Alicia Mollick, Brasilla Hon, Storm Sanders, Ola Tomjanovic, Sam Stozer will be in action. We got close last year. I think probably what holds us in good stead is, you know, where Australians and this team in particular are pretty dedicated, um, they're pretty diligent, they're fighters. And this time of year is when often a lot of other teams have played a lot of tennis. You know, they've had a long, long year on the, the tour and the calendar. I feel like we've we've got the stamina. I feel like Australia has the fight as well and the, the willpower. And that goes a long way too. When it's the end of the year, people are tired. I really feel like our team can step up because they do have a great fighting spirit. We've got experience. We've also got, you know, some youth in our team too, which is really exciting. The surface here really suits our team. It can be a leveller at times, but I think it's got just enough pace on it. Yeah, obviously, if I get the opportunity, I'll give it everything I got and, you know, hopefully I can get a win for the team. Last year was a great two wins for our team and yeah it was a really cool experience for me personally but also to be a part of this team is such a huge honour for me. You really feel in this team that these weeks we make it a priority to come here and, and do our best so to have a win here would you know trump a lot of things I've done this year so definitely something I'm looking forward to. Perth, that was a bit heartbreaking to lose that one obviously so now to you know anytime you get the opportunity to play for your country is an amazing opportunity and experience no matter how many times you've done it so would love to try and put some different memories there rather than the runner-up for sure. Uh, the voice of Sam Stozer well done to Holger Runa he's a star isn't he ATP Masters 1000 champion in Paris Arena Sabalenka to play Garcia W finals and well done to Chris O'Connell a high of 84 talk to you next Monday It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last Visit typower.com.au now